Hi, everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from experienced board directors, senior executives, and thought leaders on issues that are important for those governing organizations. My guest today is John Howard. John served on the boards of General Growth Special Purpose Entities, as well as two energy companies. He was the chief legal officer of both WorldColor, as it emerged from Chapter 11 in Canadian Reorganization, and Virtus Communications. He was the chief intellectual property counsel for Arthur Anderson and Anderson Consulting, as well as the general counsel for Quark, an international software developer. He's an advisory board member at Look Cinemas, a past executive chairman, and commissioner for the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission. John has deep experience in companies undergoing crisis, distressed capital structures, and events. In his director roles, he's overseen the reorganization of capital structures, strategic relationships, and strategic exits for investors. He currently specializes in crisis management and mediation involving businesses and natural resource crisis and disputes through his company, Balance Green Mediation. John earned his BA in history from Washington and Lee University, where he graduated magna cum laude, and is JD from the University of Colorado. Welcome, John. Morning, David. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to have you with us. And I think we're going to have a really interesting discussion today, particularly given the timeliness of your experience. I want to go to some data uh, that came out recently, because your corporate experience involves work that most company executives and board members have never had to deal with, and they frankly hope they never have to deal with. But in our most recent DCRO Crisis Sentiment Index report, 13% of respondents say their boards are concerned about their corporate viability. 10% are concerned about the viability of their entire industry. And almost half, 48% of the companies, said that they're rethinking their business model. So in this survey as well, there are indications that these numbers could worsen in the next 6 to 12 months. So my first two questions to you are, What guidance would you give to board members and executives who are among those concerned about the viability of their particular companies? And what should they be doing now to ready themselves in the event of a needed restructuring and to avoid what you called in an article I read, a down and dirty 11? I think, you know, David, the first thing is is to plan and then act. And that may seem obvious, but you need to use your credit right now to be ready to act. And too often what happens is people use up their credit month after month waiting for change or a rescue or taking a bunch of disconnected, reactive types of actions. And if I, I'll give you a recent example I saw in an interview of, of uh, Southwest Airlines CEO Gary Kelly. And obviously um, airline executives, airlines do a lot of crisis management planning is a routine business function, you know, particularly around disasters. And so he had a great tone and demeanor throughout a difficult, a very difficult interview, which I think reflected a lot of the training they do. Um, And, and, you know, of course, what industry could be more challenged right now than the airline industry? And so he said, you know, we've got investment-grade credit, and we can go at least a year in the present conditions. And then right when it was getting interesting, the interviewer moved on, and I was sort of screaming at the TV, but what what are you going to do in that year? Because I can guarantee you that, Southwest Airlines isn't sitting around for a year eating up their credit following the same strategy as before the crisis. And it really would have been fascinating to get insight into their, you know, their broader crisis management planning, like acquisitions, consolidations, creative finance, new business lines and models. 
I think in particular too, looking at your competitors and mistakes that they're making um, that they may have made six months ago that you can now plan to avoid. So, I mean, that's the first thing I would say is um, don't get reactive. Sit down, do the planning. And that, that's kind of a long subject, but the key to it is you're not reacting to events. You're gaming out li likely outcomes, and you're looking particularly at, at either frightening strategies or discarded strategies because they often hold the most opportunity when you kind of get into a crisis situation. Well, in a, in a few weeks back, um, General Charles Jacoby, who co-authored a book with Leo Tillman, uh, were my guests here. And one of the things that he had talked about is that if you haven't done the planning, it's too late. Your, your comment, plan then act, um, sounds to me to be very much aligned with what he was saying. So you need to go through something, even though your plan may wind up being incorrect. The process of planning seems to help educate you and make you a better reactor or a better actor if a crisis arrives. Is that fair? It is. It allows you to the extent you're going to have in a restructuring to have some control over events as opposed to just coming to work every day overwhelmed by all of the, um, you know, all of the, the things that are happening and, and feeling like you're in a spiral. And, it, you know, one of the things about restructuring I think is so difficult for uh, folks that haven't been through it is the language that can be used. So down in Dirty 11, you mentioned I mean, you just cannot believe the language you're going to get from bondholders and, and bond counsel. I mean, they, are, they, are, they use a very rough language. And so by having some planning and feeling like, okay, well, here I'm in the room and I know, you know, I know what I can control and what I can't control, it, it really helps you and the company and management to maintain sort of a sense of confidence and credibility, which I think is just key in this kind of in this scenario. And, and down in Dirty 11, uh, as I was reading it in your articles, seemed to suggest that's when you don't have a plan. It's, it's something that just happens or is forced upon you. Is that, uh, am I correct in that interpretation? Right. You know, you, what you want to do is, is have, uh, if you, first of all, if, you, if you're going to go, if you, if you can do something out of court, um, which is really more, looks more like a refinancing that most directors are familiar with, that's great. If you can't, then you want to do something that looks like what's called a prepack, where you've reached an agreement before you file with all of the creditors, and then you go in and to the bankruptcy court with a deal. And so it's relatively brief and it's very predictable, or at least a prepackaged, which is one in which a lot of things are already preplanned. A down and dirty 11 is where you've really run out of options and you're filing now to keep the creditors from seizing assets or seizing the company. And that is definitely a very ugly experience. Yeah, none of it is pleasant, but that's particularly unpleasant. Right. And, you know, and a prepack, for example, and I, I did a very exotic one, um, a double prepack, which just means we, we put the company that I was associated with into bankruptcy, but, and we also put another company, a competitor, into bankruptcy and then merged them. I mean, that, is very, that had the thrill, at times at least, very much of a successful merger. And so... It's an example, I think, of how you don't want to just see this as a negative. It can be stimulative. It can be opportunity. It can, and so, you know, the planning allows you to look for those types of, op, you know, opportunities and outcomes. You know, you and I both focused on this idea that understanding risk better helps you to keep from focusing on the negative um, and really looking for opportunities, as, as you had just said. And I remember, you know, in, in reading, again, some of the work that you've done, um, with general growth, 
my sense is that when they went through uh, the crisis, uh, the subprime crisis and, and the financing crisis that affected them, that the outcome was particularly good. Um, and can you talk just a bit about that? Well, so general growth is, it's sort of a, a fascinating, you know, it's really an interesting study because it, on the one hand, reflects the failure to plan. And on the other hand, it reflects once you were in the situation, there was a ton of planning done and then a very successful emergence. So general growth had um, a lot of properties. They were all in different uh you know, subsidiaries, special purpose entities, and they were almost all financed with very short-term financing, a year or two years. And so when 08 occurred, um, all of a sudden, what were cash flowing properties that more than covered uh, their interest payments and principal payments and, and produced uh, a profit, suddenly all those loans were, at, were being redeemed. And so, and there was no, there was no liquidity. No, there was no way to refinance at any level, at any cost. And so, um, the, man, the management, the senior management was replaced by, um, by new folks and then an exhaustive, we had time, um, we had some time in, in the, to get ready and so an exhaustive plan was put together by which we could use the bankruptcy laws to extend the loans and in exchange for that the lenders also got uh, better interest payments and so in the context of 08, in 2009, um, lenders were happy to get that deal because mostly what they were doing was seeing their interest written down or discharged. And so the end, end product of that was, was a very organized filing, and not only did the lenders all get paid, but the equity got paid, which is, of course, very unusual in, in a, a full-on bankruptcy. And so, um, you know, that is a classic example of you know, having some time and using the time to plan and think, reach out to people, uh, really using your advisors in a creative way, and, and, and then having the outcome be something where you have a lot of control as you go through it. And so I, I'm always really glad to talk about general growth because it was such a success. Well, and I hope that's what people are thinking as they're, as they're looking forward. So if we take that, that group of people in the crisis sentiment index and say maybe that's uh, reflective of a global uh, position for organizations, that those who fall in that, basically it was one out of eight respondents, one out of nine respondents, uh, that that's the mindset that they've got. What can we do today? And I, I, there's a study, an NYU Stern case study, um, on this general growth, both the conditions that led to the bankruptcy as well as the process for getting through it and the outcome that you just described. And I'll try to post that up along with this um, uh, particular podcast. And I want to pluck a quote that was in there and get your reaction to it. Um, the CEO of General Growth, uh, Adam Metz, is quoted in there as saying that they did not commence the Chapter 11 case because their operational model was flawed or because the properties were undesirable or performing poorly. Rather, it was the unprecedented disruption in the real estate finance market specifically, as well as the credit crisis generally. So you had just mentioned how they were using short-term debt and having to roll that over. One of the things that was really interesting to me in that quote was it seemed to keep a separation of risk and business operations Whereas if we had had risk management in there saying, look, there's a, there's a real risk with this uh, continual need to refinance, that that's actually an operational part of what we do because we've decided it in our business strategy. 
perhaps this could have been avoided or perhaps they wouldn't have had to go through this process. Do you see that kind of separation? Is that, is that a fair characterization that I just made? You know, I do. And I think, you know, it's, it's so difficult for us all to place ourselves back in the mindset of 06 and 07. But, I mean, there really was, you know, this sort of irrational exuberance about credit. And I find so much when you're doing planning, risk planning, crisis management planning, that kind of stuff, it, it's, you know, and then you look back with hindsight and you say, well, how could you have possibly thought this huge real estate empire could be financed on short-term loans? And it, it's because at the time, people just weren't willing to go through the discipline of the planning, and they were caught up in the moment. And so, I mean, it's so often how you think about these crises. We think about that in the pandemic now. There were plenty of people warning about it. And some companies like HEB, the supermarket down in Texas, actually really did a lot of planning and have been able to get through it. But it takes a discipline. It takes the risk being part of your business operations and, your, and, and being valued at the board level and at the management level for you to go ahead and game out what's going to happen if you know, this real estate empire is suddenly faced with you know, a need to refinance in a crisis. And the environment in the boardroom, I would assume, has to change some. But, but I think what I hear you saying is that the more we've thought about this in advance, the more planning we've done, the less likely it is that that environment in the C-suite boardroom is going to be destructive. So can you help us gain an insight for those of us who haven't been through these restructurings? What is the difference in the environment of the C-suite boardroom when a company is in the midst of this? Can they still focus on long-term issues? Or are they just laser focused on this one thing? How do, how do you guide them to a place where they can gain these positive outcomes that you've just discussed? It, it, it's very easy, and it, it happens to some extent in any company, but um, the less planning, the more of this. There's professional panic, right, both on a personal level. Oh, my goodness, I'm a director that's now going to be tainted with a bankruptcy. And then on a company level. Um, and so, you know, that panic, you, what you want to do is use the planning to, to make that into something that's not panic, but in fact, it's more stimulative. It's more interesting. It's more creative. And there's this overwhelming rush of events going on. Um, you're having to pay for all the advisors, for all the bondholders and other creditors, and you have a limited ability to, you know, to retain your own employees and management. Um, and then there's a slow burn sort of recognition that the players, so maybe the CEO, the COO, the CFO, and other relationships, some of the directors, are going to change, and in some cases, they're going to go away. And so what you want to do is you want to accelerate all of that and get in front of it by organizing, by planning, and challenging your prior thinking. And, and, and also, you know, I was just counseling uh, a general counsel that is about to go through this for the first time in the, in the media business, who I, I just happened to know, and he he gave me a call. You, you really, this is not a moment to skimp on, um, on advisors, not to, uh, not to use people that you've been comfortable with in the past, lawyers, accountants, auditors, um, all those types of advisors, because it's a wholly new experience, and you really need to, you know, to go ahead and make certain. It's the one area where the, the lenders are going to let you spend a lot of money is to get the best advice because they want to see you accelerating as well, getting over, um, you know, sort of an unreality or, or, or a normal business reality and getting into that restructuring reality. 
And then, you know, boards can focus on long-term issues. I, you know, I think that is really important. Um, you don't want to just be thinking about, um, you know, short-term reactive types of things because, um, and, and I've argued on my website that way, but everyone, and this is a key point I find that, that boards have to get over and management has to get over. Everyone, equity, debt, the government, the press, all the constituencies will see you as having failed. And it's just amazing to see how long it can take management and the board to accept that. And you can waste a lot of time, on, you know, even months. And if you just go ahead and accept that and say, okay, from a constituent's point of view, they're losing millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. So we have to acknowledge failure and then change our behavior, not make excuses. And once you do that, you have huge opportunities to add value as a board member or as a member of management. Um, and, and the first one, the critical one, is what's the crisis? It, it's usually not that you can't pay your debt. It's that you can't service it. And, and why is it that you can't service it? And so you really want to try and get the existing board and management team um, to think about that. And I've actually even seen it in, in one case where not only did the existing team not understand what the real crisis was, the new money takeover team uh, never really identified what the real crisis in the business model was. And so that ended up in, in a Chapter 22, which is a euphemism for a second bankruptcy filing. So yeah. uh, that's, how you, that's how a board member or a senior member of management gets their credibility back. They acknowledge that they failed they identify the real crisis and they start putting out strategies for how to fix it. And that's what everybody is looking for um, when you get into these, you know, kind of into these positions. Well, in the articles that you've written on LinkedIn, I think you're able to point back to some of these successes. So we can remember that somebody's gone through a bankruptcy, but when you remember someone's gone through a bankruptcy and come out on the other side in a positive way, you know, there's the, the classic expression that Americans love a second act. That's almost what those sound like. So this is interesting to me because I hear you say focus both on the business structure, the model, to make sure that over the long run what they're doing is sustainable. But then there's a focus on perhaps restructuring the debt and other things to make in the short term the debt more manageable. So that's, that's I think, a very positive way of, of looking at things. Uh, you also... So I, I don't want to spend too much time focused on the negative here because it's, it's, it's really about getting to a better place. But you also wrote something about the human capital cost when you're trying to write a business. And that struck me because I, I don't know of any executive or any board member who doesn't have some concern about the welfare of their employees. I mean, they, they see that as one of the highest priorities they have. But once you're into a restructuring, there is going to be a human capital cost. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's almost to me an incentive to be trying to deal with things early as you advised. I'm trying to get at how it feels for someone who's having to consider those and, and why it was that that bothered you so much. Yeah, it's, it's a great question because um, it's a little bit like a combat veteran. Like when you read about combat veterans, so often they don't make friends with replacements because it's so painful for them to lose friends. And so I was the CLO and the 
secretary of the board for a company once that was laying off a lot of people. And, and our headquarters at times would get into trouble because they had this sort of natural reaction to repress their humanity in favor of spreadsheets with names and total numbers and dollars to get to compliance with the covenants. And you just can't do that at all, whether it's in a pure crisis or in a turnaround. And so I, I was in a meeting with a deputy GC uh, who reported to me and then a VP in finance. And they're both great people, but they were, they were really doing this and talking about a pending plant shutdown in a way that just was, was very unhuman. And so I signed both of them to attend the plant shutdown. And so 120 people sent out into the parking lot one day for the last time, you know, with no real prospects in this small regional town. Um, you know, no similar unionized, well-paying jobs, you know, facing moves like something out of the Great Sarath. And they both showed up in my office the following Monday, and, you know, they were, they were like shell-shocked. But what it did was it connected them with what was going on, and that's what produces sort of the opportunity around um, human capital. I was in that same business once we got a turnaround CEO, and we were in a meeting, and he turned around to me and said, um, you know, this middle manager is the best strategist in, in the company. And, and the prior CEOs had viewed that person as a troublemaker. But Mike was so connected from his visits to all of the plants, such a great listener, that he wasn't focused on who was getting laid off. He was focused on all the talent that was buried. And so mm -hmm. I think in order for you to have that sort of connection to human capital, you always have to be feeling it. And even if it's painful, you want to you want to be able to feel it. And because when you're in a turnaround, I don't know if you've ever I'm sure you've seen the movie MASH. I'm showing my age a little bit. But there's this scene where Hawkeye and Trapper John, um, these two unconventional meatball surgeons show up in a very prim and proper Tokyo hospital and they make all sorts of outrageous demands, including demanding a, a steak dinner. And after all the existing management runs out of the room to get the military police, one nurse puts her hand on her hip and says, how do you want your steak? That's the employee that you want in the middle of this <laughs> crisis because they get it. And you cannot spot those people if you're just looking at spreadsheets. And so, you know, there's a cost and an opportunity with human capital. But I, I believe in, in any kind of restructuring or turnaround, that's the most important asset, not the machines, not the locations. Um, it's the people. Well, and let's pivot a little bit to the work that you do now um, in crisis management and mediation. You also talk in some of your articles about the importance of relentless optimism in mediation. So can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing, um, and then uh, I think you're referencing back to uh, George Mitchell and the uh, Good Friday Accords when you talk about successful mediation being focused on relentless optimism. Can you bring those to life for our listeners? Sure. I, I, I started at mediating after I got done as, as chairman at Colorado Parks and Wildlife because I had essentially spent four years in these large public meetings with, you know, just uh, you know, you've got activists, you've got government officials, the press, um, uh, lots of, you know, rooms where you have to do everything in public, and there are hundreds of people there. And I just suddenly had people telling me, you know, you're really good at getting people to listen to each other. And so my, my mediation work, it's just a little bit of a sideline, but it's focused on business and natural resources because 
most mediators are generalists. And so if you don't know what a balance sheet, a P&L, uh, what a fractured board looks like, I, I really don't feel like you can be as good a mediator um, as somebody that's, you know, one day doing child custody and the other day doing car accident cases. So I do a lot of um, that. That's I don't do a lot, but that's kind of my focus. And you know, for me, companies they get sideways with customers, vendors, investors, and activists because they don't really plan for crisis and they don't they don't see what's coming, um, and they they repress it and they think they hope things will pass. And 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 that's very hard to do when crisis management and risk management are really central to your business processes. And and so again, you know, to me, you want to do all that planning because then you can be what George Mitchell, that relentless optimism quote is from Mitchell's book on which he wrote after he mediated in, in Northern Ireland, is your job as a mediator, which is as a neutral, or whether you're in as a crisis manager, either at the board level or helping the board, you, you do need to be relentlessly optimistic. You need to be constantly getting people to understand that yes, this is a terrible day today. People have said horrible things to each other, but now we've got that out of the way. What can we do with it? And so I, I feel like that's really something I learned in public service was, um, you know, your job is really, especially running a big public meeting, is to always be able to kind of pull people forward. And, and that's what I mean by relentless optimism. Um, and, you know, and it, it, I think what's so interesting sometimes too is you want to really have a culture. Sometimes you go into businesses and they already have this culture, but it's one, I think you re, you've written about it as well, which is, for example, I like Kaizen meetings a lot. And I, I, I just fell in love with them in these manufacturing businesses I've worked on where, and it's a Japanese uh, business practice, but everybody in the company from the lowest level person on the line is encouraged to be relentlessly optimistic about what they're doing and to surface risk and surface things that are going on in meetings right after their shift. And then that information is passed on to the next shift and then maybe it's sent to the next uh, to other divisions and then hopefully it makes its way up in the risk management function to the CEO and to the board. And that's how you sort of take that relentless optimism and turn it into a huge operational advantage because the most important thing to do in crisis is not to manage the crisis, it's to avoid it. And, you know, you want to spot those warning signs and the best way to do it is with a culture that looks for it and is encouraged to report it, not punished for reporting it. So I, I, I think that's a hugely important um, component of all the work that I do, whether it's mediating or helping uh, on crisis management. Well, and this gets me to a really interesting thought about your work. Um, I've done a little bit of work in mediating between activists, investors, and, and boards. And we've talked here about how important it is to get out front. If an activist investor was looking at a company, would it make sense for them to approach the board with someone like you, someone with your skill set, and say, this isn't about saying we think you're going to fail. This is about understanding some of the things we see that make us concerned. Now, John's here, he's got this experience, and we're really focused on a positive outcome. Is that something you can see yourself being drawn into? Is that something that's valuable um, if somebody from the outside comes in and says, we think there's a potential problem developing? They see the gray rhino, in other words. It, it certainly could be. The, the, what I always tell people about mediation is, 
it's, it's a no-lose option. First of all, it's not terribly expensive, and it's not terribly long. I mean, obviously, Mitchell, George Mitchell had a very long mediation, but most business mediations are a day, two days, three days, something like that. And what you're trying to do there is, and this is what I do whenever I work with a board or I go in as a new person um, anyway, is I ask a lot of questions. And the questions are to educate me, but they're also designed to trigger um, the folks around on both sides to think new thoughts. Uh, oftentimes, in my experience, when you have activists coming after a company, public companies um, in particular, they, they tend to, management and the board will tend to react with, oh my goodness, where's the poison pill? Um, and, and all of those types of defensive types of actions. And so they don't necessarily hear what the activists are saying. And of course, the activists then see the adoption of a poison pill as, as an attack against them. And, it, and so what you're trying to do is to get in and say, okay, that can all go on. That's all, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. What we're here to talk about today is, you know, and then have both sides tell you what they're thinking about. And then hopefully, you know, through subtle questioning, like, you know, how does that help us today or things like that, you get people to think across those barriers. And what I always say about mediation is, number one, I can promise you this, you'll have a better understanding of the other side. And number two, we may get to a solution. But that number one always is the case. So it's, it's a no-lose proposition. I want to give you a chance to, to give us any closing thoughts you have, and particularly advice to boards or um, board members who are listening now who may be thinking about the situation their company is in, what guidance can you give them at this point um, or any resources that you'd like to guide them to? Well, let, let me give you a couple of you know, resources and then I'll give you what I think is one of the most critical tactical things that, that you need to do. And first is I, I would highly recommend uh, Stephen Fink's two books on crisis management and crisis communication. I'm, I'm a total acolyte uh, for, of his work and got started on it back in 2003 in a course I took on crisis management. And I, I just, they're very easy books to read. They're not too long, and I, I highly recommend them. And then the tactical thing that I would say is really important is you, you need to divide the management team and the board into a running the business part and a running the crisis part. Um, the overall board and the CEO they're like the general manager and the coach, but they can be overwhelmed if they're trying to execute all the plays. And so what you want to do is have these two different teams that communicate very well to each other um, so no one is ever surprised. But they're working both sides of the, of the business because you've got to keep it running and then also the crisis. And so that, that's a critical um, tactical move that, I, that so often companies really don't make. And... Um, and, and I find that is, is one of the ways that you can really kind of make decisions happen as opposed to having them go into kind of an analysis paralysis where there's just too many people involved in trying to get uh, either the crisis of the day managed or the, uh, or the business managed. And then the last thing I was going to say, David, I know this sounds a little bit clubby, but I really like your new book, uh, Board Member's Guide to Risk. And I think as I've told you, I've incorporated 
really some of the analytic and quantitative pieces into my, my new client guide. Um, because so many managers and, and, and board members really need to see that quantified risk um, in order for them to buy into doing the planning. And they, they, they're suspicious of narrative and story. They like to see that quantification. And so I, I found that part of your books really um, a huge help to me. Um, and then the last thing I'll just say is I, I think I've emphasized early on you want to hire um, the, the right law firms um, and the right forensic accountants, which your lenders are going to insist on. And there's really just two players both in, on the debtor side for corporate uh, businesses and then there's and the same thing on the forensic side. And so I'll, just, I'll offer up to anybody if they'd like, they can contact me and I'd be glad to give you a, a rundown on, on, on all of that. But, Again, that's really critical. Don't skimp on trying to get the best advice. And John, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today, and thank you for your kind words. Most of what appears in my books are based on things that I've learned from others, so we've learned quite a bit from you today and your experiences. I'd encourage anyone to get in touch with John who has questions about this. Um, you'll be able to link to his LinkedIn profile uh, from the podcast page uh, and ask any questions that you might have. Thank you again, John. Thank you, David.